It seems to me that we just don't get it. And by we, I mean our present array of world leaders, particularly Joe Biden in the USA and the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Biden, it's suggested, is about to approve a $10 billion oil field in Alaska on pristine territory. Here in Australia, the Albanese-led federal Labor government has plans to allow the opening of more coal mines and allow fracking for gas. In various parts of Australia, including in Northern Territory's Beetaloo Basin, which is said to be like a carbon bomb, people and various authorities from all around the world say that if we are to ever combat the climate crisis or global heating, climate change, call it what you please, we can afford to have no new coal or gas. An idea that is being reflected and campaigned for by the Australian Greens. This lament about climate leadership all around the world is on Climate Conversations. Welcome. This is the latest episode. Yes, I'm so pleased you joined me on this climate journey. Climate Conversations is a podcast assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging. It's been said that we cannot fix the climate crisis by applying the same solutions, solutions that actually caused the problem in the first place. Leadership, subsequently, is a real issue. We need people who can think beyond what exists and think about something different and think about a new way of living. And just earlier this month, on the drum on the ABC television, we saw a show that was about the voice to Parliament for Indigenous people. And although the issue was different, the panel did talk about leadership. And one of those was Miriam Mohammed. You'll find more about Miriam in the show notes. But here she is now talking about the voice and leadership. Would that decision have been made if the people it was impacting were at the table when the strategies were being discussed? And I think that's a primary leadership failure. And we're going to talk about this later in the show as well. But when we talk about leadership, I think this is where we can go beyond an acknowledgement of country and learn better people-centered, planet-centered leadership from the First Nations of this land. We cannot build solutions for a broken system from the idea of implementing more solutions based on a broken system. Leadership needs to be people-centered. And if we're trying as whether it's politicians or business owners trying to solve a problem for the people, said people need to be at the table when decisions are being made. That seems common sense. America's Bill McKibben understands and knows something about leadership. He's the man behind America's and the international 350.org. And in 1989, he wrote the book, The End of Nature, which really, so to speak, put the cat among the pigeons and ignited the conversation about the climate crisis. It came about the same time as James Hansen, a NASA climate scientist, gave evidence to the US Congress about the quickly evolving climate crisis. Let's have a listen now to well-known podcaster Ezra Klein as he prepares to talk with Bill McKibben. 
I'm Ezra Klein. This is The Ezra Klein Show. I have this frustration with the rhythm of how we cover American politics. I've had it for a very long time. It's this. So we spend in the press all this time covering elections and campaigns and politicians, and then they get elected and we cover their fights and their legislative battles. And is the bill going to pass? And what's happening to build back better? And what is Joe Manchin doing? And then finally, sometimes, if you're lucky, something big and good passes. And then we just move on. (laughs) We just go on to the next thing. But bills don't do all that much on their own. They actually have to be implemented. They have to become something real in the world to have the effect they were meant to have. And that's where we are now on climate. Over the past two years, the Biden administration and the Democrats, they passed a huge series of climate bills. The Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, about $450 billion of climate investment. And behind that number lurks all kinds of new agencies and standards and mandates and goals. And even more than that, those bills and that politics has been a signal to the private sector, which is investing here, to lots of young people who are going into climate tech and climate activism, to all kinds of members of the building trades who are reorganizing and retooling and retraining to know how to build everything we're going to need to build, to electrify, to weatherize. It's big. What has to happen in the coming years is big, and we can't just expect that it'll happen on its own. So I've done, a couple months ago, this big, long conversation with Jesse Jenkins about the imagined path to decarbonization here, what the drafters of these bills hope will happen. I really recommend that conversation to understand the context, and I'll put a link in show notes. But this conversation is different. This conversation is about how to make it happen. Something I've heard again and again in the past few months is that the climate movement is fracturing under the weight of its own success. Actually getting these bills done, actually moving to where you can implement them. Now there are a lot of fights. Now there's a lot of really hard trade-offs that have to be made. But I really don't think fracturing is the right term here. I think the right term is governing. Writing legislation forces choice. You got to make all these decisions, massive coalitions that can come together in opposition or come together when what you're passing or creating is imaginary. They always crack apart. They always find their deep tensions when they succeed and have to govern. But that is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of power. It happens to candidates all the time. They run for office as radicals promising to change the system. Then they win and they actually have to govern. And the trade-offs they make and the compromises they have to make and the fact that they need to make a budget work, it alienates a lot of their former allies. People who looked radical begin to look incremental. But at the same time, instead of the change they imagined just being a hypothetical, it begins to happen in the real world. Real people's lives are made better. New groups and power centers join their coalition. These are transitions, not dissolutions. Fracturing makes it sound like the movements are simply losing power. In truth, they're gaining power. That's where the climate movement and anyone working on climate is now. Enough bills have passed, enough money has been set aside, enough technologies have been created or are being created that we really do have a chance. It's remarkable. We really do have a chance to avert the worst of global warming. 
But that means a movement that has spent most of its life learning how to stop terrible things from happening, it needs to become something different. A movement that builds real things in the real world at a breakneck pace. A movement that doesn't just say yes, but figures out how to make all kinds of communities and groups and cities around the country say yes, yes and yes and yes, again and again and again, faster than we have in decades. The climate movement has to govern now. They have to help this country build this whole infrastructure that they have imagined. And governing and building in this country, it is damn hard. But this should be, I think, a space not just for hope, but for excitement. I mean, one reason I wanted to have this topic, this conversation right now, post-election, is that however the House turns out, these next two years are not going to be a period of passing major climate bills through Congress. There's going to be a lot of paralysis, a lot of infighting, but that doesn't mean the next two years will be a time of stasis. The next two years and long beyond that are going to be about making good on the promise of the legislation passed in 2021 and 2022. It's going to be about building the world those bills promised to make. It's going to be about actually getting us on a better path for our climate. There are very few people who have been as central to climate as an issue, to the way we understand climate and the challenges we're facing, and to the climate movement as an organization, as an ecosystem, as Bill McKibben. His 1989 book, The End of Nature, it's often compared to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and how big of an effect it had on this issue. He has ever since been one of the movement's most important writers and thinkers, but also activists and organizers. He did not just stand on the sidelines. He's the founder of 350.org, one of the largest climate activist organizations in the world. He was a key leader in the fight to block the Keystone XL pipeline. And he's been thinking and reading and organizing and working and trying to see what the movement has to become next, what has to happen next. So I wanted to have him on the show to talk about the new era of the climate movement, the new era we're in in climate politics, and what all of us will have to do to meet this moment. As always, my email is reclineshow at nytimes.com. Don't forget to check out the show notes for you'll find a link to that Ezra Klein podcast. Let's have a listen now to some audio from Yale Climate Connections, where they talk about the fact that many coastal residents willing to relocate in the face of sea level rise. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. As seas rise, water is increasingly creeping into homes and neighborhoods. And over time, a growing number of coastal residents will need to decide whether to accept frequent flooding or move. Anna Maria Bokvich of the Center for Coastal Studies at Virginia Tech wanted to know how willing people are to consider a permanent move. She surveyed more than 1,400 residents living in flood-prone urban areas from New York to Florida. She found that almost half would be willing to move if flooding becomes more frequent and severe. Close to 40% of them would consider doing so, maybe in the future. And only 13% said they would not relocate. So that is amazing finding. We didn't expect to see such high numbers. She says the risk to personal property is not the only motivating factor. People have things that are important to them in their communities. If churches, coffee shops, and other centers of community close because of flooding, residents have fewer reasons to stay. Bofitch says learning what makes people willing to relocate can help policymakers design programs to support people as the oceans continue to rise. 
Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Confirmation of what Joe Biden's planning to do in Alaska can be found in this New York Times story. The headline for the story is, Biden administration expected to move ahead on major oil project in Alaska. The story by Lisa Friedman begins, In one of its most consequential climate decisions, the Biden administration is planning to greenlight an enormous 8 billion oil drilling project in the North Slope of Alaska, according to two people familiar with the decision. Alaska lawmakers and oil executives have put intense pressure on the White House to approve the project, citing President Biden's own calls for the industry to increase production amid volatile gas prices. But the proposal to draw for oil has also galvanised young voters and climate activists, many of whom helped elect Mr Biden, and they would view the decision as a betrayal of the President's promise that he would pivot the nation away from fossil fuels. Next we head to Drilled for a story that has the headline The Trouble with Market-Based Climate Solutions. The story begins. Over the past several months, I've been working on three stories that, on the surface, don't have much to do with each other. They were focused on fossil fuel funding of university research, Exxon pulling funding from algae biofuels research, and the country of Guyana emerging as a new oil state. The line that keeps popping to mind when I think about each of them, though, is this. What happens when you leave a problem like climate change to the market to solve? In the case of university funding, several researchers and university administrators said similar things to me, along the lines of, well, if we're not taking oil company money to study drilling, I don't see the problem. Or, if they're funding solutions, that should be welcomed. But those takes ignore the way that money can warp what's considered a viable solution. Fossil fuel companies primarily fund research into the technology solutions to climate change that don't require ditching combustion engines or fossil fuels, biofuels and carbon capture. They also like to fund public policy schools, economics programs and legal centres that push for a particular understanding of the market and fossil fuels' role in it. I came out in an earlier episode, in support of the degrowth philosophy, an idea I thought could ease the climate crisis. And now we have a story from Rosalie Bull from the Steady State Herald entitled Degrowth in a Green Growth World. Rosalie's story begins, I'm having an ongoing conversation with a friend about the merits and drawbacks of degrowth as a climate action strategy. She's easily the most astute climate thinker I know with insights available only to those deeply immersed in the nuances of climate finance and decarbonisation. She's wary of the degrowth movement, as are many prominent players in the climate transition. She views it as an unhelpful distraction from humanity's efforts to grapple with the climate crisis. Next we move to the Atlantic, where we have a story with the headline A Blanket of Snow for California. It's a series of pictures. A string of powerful winter storms rolled across California over the past week, bringing rainfall to lower elevations than the area has seen in decades and boosting the state's snowpack, which now stands at 189% of its average for this time of the year. Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency for 13 counties, including Los Angeles County, due to the storms. 
Now we go to The Guardian, where we have a story by Oliver Durr, and it has the headline, The First Great Energy Transition, How Humanity Gave Up Whaling. Oliver's story begins, Hunchback whales can rhyme. Their songs are made up of individual themes, phrases and sounds, many of them ending similarly. They are repeated in patterns that create rhythms and structures. To human ears, the songs are a series of grunts, groans, sighs, burps and squeaks, but they are arranged by the whale in a highly elaborate manner. The songs change over time too. Themes develop and are replaced, and phrases shift until every few years a completely new song emerges. Whales also adopt the songs of other whales, like a pop hit that everyone starts to sing. What's more, whale songs migrate. In Australia, researchers found that a particular song that was initially sung only on the West Coast made its way to the East Coast. And now from the New Daily, we have a story by Marty Silk. The headline for Marty's story is Move people to rooftops. Worst ever Queensland rain forces Burktown evacuation as power and sewers fail. His story begins. Residents of a northwest Queensland town are reluctantly leaving their waterlogged homes behind, while emergency services warn that power has been cut to Burktown due to the flood risks there. Police say the last chance to evacuate is during daylight, although several residents have chosen to stay. Superintendent Tom Armit told the ABC that emergency services only had a certain window of opportunity to deploy personnel and equipment such as helicopters. We don't know how much ground will be left if the water continues to peak and cover all the ground, he said on Saturday. Finally, we have a story from Inside Climate News. The headline for that story is, At Sierra Week, Big Oil Executives Call for Energy Security and Longevity for Fossil Fuels. The dateline is Houston. The past 12 months brought new climate extremes. With Pakistan's devastating floods, and record melting of Antarctica's sea ice, as just two examples. But when the world's top oil executives gathered for an annual conference in Houston this week, they were focused instead on the war in Ukraine and the painful reminder it delivered of the global economy's persistent dependence on oil and gas. Many global leaders and climate scientists have seen this stubborn addiction to fossil fuels as an urgent call to rapidly phase out their use. The message from many oil and gas executives in Houston was the opposite. I think the issue of how we best move toward a lower carbon energy system is being reframed, said Mike Worth, chief executive of Chevron, which recorded a record high 36.5 billion profit last year. You can find links to all those stories and comments mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Now don't forget, go to the show notes. I've only scratched the surface of what seems like a never-ending series of stories about the climate crisis. Anyway, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share with your friends. In fact, I'd love you to share with your friends, because this is a climate crisis. A real crisis, something we all need to know as much about as we possibly can. So please share. So until we talk again, please take care.